Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Our podcast series examines from a range of perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Hello there, welcome to the podcast. Today we're coming from the Royal London Hospital, which is part of the East London Foundation Trust, where we're recording just off an already busy accident emergency department. Now, today's podcast is about suicide prevention, and more specifically, it asks the question, what can financial service firms, banks, building societies, and even debt advice organisations realistically do to prevent people from taking their own lives? Last year in the UK, 5,821 people intentionally took their own life. Every one of these lost represents a tragedy for the person involved, their families, friends, colleagues, and communities. However, the number of lives lost to suicide is only part of the landscape. Suicide attempts are often preceded by years of suicidal thoughts, with 1 in 20 adults in England reporting that they've thought about taking their own life in the past year, and most who do make an attempt will do so within the first year of such thoughts. Given the relationship between financial difficulty and suicide, which we'll hear more about in our discussion, many people working in the financial services and debt advice sectors will, at some point, encounter a customer who they are concerned may be considering taking their own life. Indeed, research conducted last year with debt collection staff found that one in four frontline staff reported speaking to at least one customer they seriously believe might kill themselves. And research published this month found that half of debt advisors reported similar encounters. And critically for our discussion, both pieces of research found that many staff were unsure how to respond to this, were unclear on what organisational policy to follow, and hadn't received any training. While financial organisations and debt advice agencies are not listening or counselling services, it would seem they are on the front line when it comes to suicide prevention. And this raises two questions for uh, today's discussion. What can they realistically do to prevent lives from being lost to suicide? And where does the responsibility of the financial services sector begin and end? To help us consider this question, I'm joined by three people who have a personal, practical and professional stake in considering these issues. Gareth McNabb is a survivor of suicide and is also Money Advice Liaison liaison Manager at Nationwide, where he has involvement in much of Nationwide's work around vulnerability, particularly regarding financial difficulty and collections and recoveries. Katie Evans is Head of Research and Policy at the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, where along with colleagues Nikki Bond and Merlin Holker has overseen their new research paper, A Silent Killer, Breaking the Link Between Financial Difficulty and Suicide. And Reggie Albert is a nurse consultant at the East London Foundation Trust, where she's part of the liaison psychiatry team. Uh, Reggae's work involves providing mental health assessment and services to people attending physical healthcare settings, including A&E, where she often work with people who have attempted to take their own life. So, to open us up, we're going to start with the experience of suicide, both from the perspective of Gareth, who's lived through the situation um, himself, and then from Reggae, who has worked with people who are living with suicidal thoughts or behaviours. Let's hear first from Gareth about his experience. So my experience of uh, suicide is personal in a couple of different ways. Um, When I was 18, 19 years old, um, coming to the end of my first year of university, uh, having moved away from home, got myself into some financial difficulty, owing more than £1,000 on rent, uh, being right at the end of my overdraft limit, um, a traumatic relationship breakdown um, and limited support available and failing in my studies, um, life was getting very, very messy. Uh, and uh, having sought some help and got some help with the academics and a little bit with the money and a little bit with the rent um, I think in the end it was the relationship breakdown was really the critical factor and led to me uh, trying to take my life uh, three or four months later after the end of my first year Uh, my other broader experience of uh, suicide it comes close in my family Um, I've supported a couple of close family members through Uh, suicidal thoughts uh, getting to the point of plans and uh, deliberate attempts Um, and so while a lot of that is early that's late teens early 20s now 15 years later it still colours and flavours how I try and support people in my role uh, and just in my personal life. Gareth we've just heard in the recorded piece about your your experiences money clearly paid some part in this can you tell us a bit more? Yeah so uh, take you back, I was 19, it was the end of my first year at university, um, had had a traumatic relationship breakdown, uh, deeply traumatic for her and for me, um, had 
was failing in my studies, um, in part because it was my first year anyway. I was only ever aiming for forty percent to pass, um, but uh, the mental health difficulties I faced through that final term uh, really spun me out. Um, my I'd left home at seventeen uh, and was at university away from where my family was based, and so no real support network around me. Um, I had a £1,200 rent bill hanging over my head because I'd changed accommodation during my first year and nobody had thought to ask me to pay for it. Uh, and, uh, and I had no money. I was up to my overdraft limit. Uh, and so money worries were a part of my story. Um, they absolutely weren't the leading factor. Uh, and they were part of quite a, a, a mess, really, of life uh, as it was happening to me. I was not in control of any, really, any of those factors. And what help did you get at the time? Uh, so, with I didn't seek any help with regards to relationship difficulties. Um, I did seek some help from the university in terms of my studies, um, in just indicating, look, I've got a lot going on in life right now, and they were really fine about that. They were really accommodating in terms of letting me complete modules by the end of the summer holiday to return. Um, uh, I sought help from the university in terms of finances and studies, so the uh, registry office. They put me in touch with the student support advisory um, group and I got to see a counsellor. Um, I'm not sure quite what kind of counselling was going on at the time, bear in mind this is 18, 19 years ago. Um, I remember quite vividly a conversation on the lines of um, hi, I'm in trouble and I need some help. Met with the question of what help do you need? Um, lovely, beautiful people, what help do you need? Um, I don't know, what help can you give me? Well, it all depends on what help it is you need, Gareth. What help is it you need? I don't know. I just need some help. I don't know what help you can give me. I will take any help you can give me. I'm in a lot of trouble and I really need help. And it kind of went around like that for what feels like much most of an hour. I'm probably blowing that up in my mind um, but I, I remember leaving that session uh, deeply dissatisfied that um, I've done the brave thing of hey I need some help and it doesn't seem like help is very easy to get or that this um, pressure to go and seek help is ever is followed through on with anything really practical or really supportive for, for me and my circumstances that was um, about two months before uh, my suicide attempt and so this was in the run-up. The factors are bubbling away and are intersecting and beginning to cause a real crisis for me. Um, and I think that experience of, I did try and seek some help and it didn't seem to work, I think that played a factor in the hopelessness that was part of the spiral. Mm. And this, you've gone on um, to become a, play a pivotal role at Nationwide in their work around vulnerability. I was wondering how these experiences, asking for help, uh, the hopelessness, um, feeling suicidal, have played into some of the strategies and um, developments that you put into place there? I think what my experience brings is um, I give a really strong pushback to anybody who tries to process map anything to do with vulnerable customers, financial difficulty, mental health. Um, in financial services, this is traditionally how you would train out any new process. Uh, it's how you would um, plan any new customer journey. It's the way you, you plan so that nothing fails. But it's a deeply human thing. Um, and, and so my push within Nationwide, shared by many others, uh, is to recruit for skill. Um, and those skills to be particularly around listening and empathy and very human skills, rather than to recruit for debt collection experience. And we'll try and add some niceness on top of it um, and, and that plays out elsewhere within Nationwide as well, not just in collections. Um, it sometimes isn't a very popular view in the room, um, whether that's in-house or in cross-industry issues or in interacting with uh, charities and policy institutes um, in terms of reminding them that we can, in a perfect world, we might be able to put some processes into frontline that will help reduce suicide, reduce gambling, reduce other vulnerabilities. But in practice, you have to understand that putting a process flow into an, into an industry that's very used to processes but will tend towards putting them in simply and straightforwardly as a process without much of the human stuff around the edges. It's the human stuff that's got to be done right when it comes to support for people in financial difficulty or other vulnerable circumstances. Uh, it's that that 
I think way 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 back um, the university dealt with me very well uh, in the end the housing office dealt with me very well I was disappointed that it, sa- it seems like that counsellor I saw was following a process mm-hmm. of reflective questioning and not steering me down a particular route or whatever and if she'd only noticed that I didn't understand her question and that it was causing me anxiety things might have turned out differently for me so there's an issue we'll come back to. How do you introduce um, simple steps that staff can take, perhaps in a creditor or collection setting, to address um, suicidal thoughts or to act and start a conversation with someone without losing that human element? Um, Reggae, can you tell us a bit about the work that you do here at the, um, at the Trust and a little bit about the role that financial difficulty plays in some of the people that you see who might be thinking about suicide? Yeah, so what we do uh, when a person comes to A&E, if we see them on the wards, is first of all trying to keep that human element and actually find out what is going on with the person. It's, uh, it's interesting you talked about how it felt like a process and in mental health we are very much trying to stay away from that because we know it just doesn't work. So as a sort of starting uh, block, like what we do with the person coming in is we ask the person what's going on, what do you think is happening, trying to get a sense of what is going on from a mental health point of view. Is there any acute symptoms that might be adding to the mental distress? So the person might not might be feeling very depressed or there might be other type of things going on. But actually when it comes to supporting a person who might be feeling suicidal, that's an, only a small part of it. The bigger part of it is trying to engage the person, it's the listening, it's the empathy. And it's about trying to instill a sense of hope that actually whatever is going on it's not so awful that we can't try and help you think about what to do. So from our point of view and especially with a nursing background we have quite a pragmatic approach like what can be solved so what bits in a situation that has many many factors what bits of that situation can you do something practical about what bits is the where you might need a reflective session where the person gets you to think about what's going on uh, and what bits do we might we might have to guide the person down the road but we don't tell people what to do and the idea is very much like what you're talking about everyone's very different we try and get the person to think about what bits can they do and then what bits can we then steer them to to that might help them support in those things so it probably sounds quite vague so perhaps if I give a bit of an example mm-hmm. yeah. this is going to be a generic example it isn't about um, a person but someone might come and talk about uh, having had very similar situation where there might be some debts there might be relationship problems we then start talking to the person about what's going on what people do they have around them but more importantly what are they like as a person when things aren't difficult because once you start thinking about what the situation is like when things aren't difficult, you, you realise what strengths the person has, and then that, that will give you a bit of a guidance to what the person might be able to do themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that will also give you some uh, sense of what the person might have done in the past when they had tricky situations, because generally speaking, life isn't just very easy all the way through and suddenly there's something going on. There's often a number of situations in your past where there might have been problems, and we try to get the person to think about what helped in those instances because that can give you a bit of an indication of what might help now. Mm-hmm. Um, we then start thinking with the person about what help they might need. It can be something very practical, like um, there might be issues with uh, debts. So we uh, often talk about Citizens Advice Bureau, but there's loads of organisations that can help advise on financial situations. But often there's other things going on, like giving the person the confidence to go and speak to the person they might have a conflict with. Uh, so it might be finances is, is one part of it, but actually often what's going on um, might be there might be a breakup in a relationship, there might be some disentangled debt issues, and actually how do you then start thinking about disentangling those? Uh, so we try and get the person to think about what bits they can do, where they might need to get more support, and then we often think about the next step is the contingency plan. Because when you start talking about this, and you have a plan now, once the person goes off and tries it and it doesn't work, it's about a sense that if this doesn't work, what else might there be out there? Does this make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And the financial difficulty element, how often, you meant you touched on it there, but how often does that come up in the work that you're doing with people who are feeling suicidal? So I was trying to think about um, how often this comes up before we had this um, uh, conversation and actually often we see it more in it's it's a trigger but it's not the main thing so often it's like it's often like around relationship 
problems of work and then the finance is a smaller part of it but actually the issues people talk about is the the stress that might come with it so for instance the the uh, example I gave about a relationship that might be breaking up there might be kids in the picture there might be credit cards debt, there might be mortgages um, but actually what the main stress is probably the relationship breakup and the finances is the added bit that adds to the stress. So often uh, it's the, the person might be more focused in talking about the fact that actually the relationship breakup is really, really difficult and how it makes them feel and the loss and the stress uh, around that. And then the finances is the byproduct. So that's when I say the pragmatic approach. We often talk to people about give your mortgage or, the mortgage or the bank a call and actually talk about what are your options. Give the electricity company a call because if you haven't paid your bills. Uh, and then we then help them think about the emotions they have around the relationship that might have broken mm. up. And what guidance do you get around the financial difficulty element uh, in terms of your employer or other organisations? So what, what guidance we give? Yeah, what, what, guidance? Gui- no, what guidance do you give, enable to give that, um, that assistance or those suggestions? So we, we, we don't really get much guidance. However, like we, we work, uh, so in, in our team, in our work, we look at to the National Confidential Inquiry into Suicide and Homicide, and there's a lot of information and, and research behind that that actually talks about uh, economic adversity is a major trigger <coughs> or is antecedent for people attempting suicide or people who die from suicide. So we sort of look at that, some mm. research that guide us, but actually some practical advice about, okay, this is what you can do. It's a bit hit, hit and miss. Um, we, I've worked in places where we had benefit advisors, mm-hmm. so having those is a major bonus, but again, they're few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we then work with uh, organizations, there's charities around, like local libraries are often a really good place to go and, and find out if there's any advisory services around. So we talk to people saying, what is your nearest library? Can you go and have a look? So when you walk in, there's often a notice board with mm. lots of leaflets. Um, organizations like Mind is yeah. a good source to go to. So again, it depends on where people live. Yeah. Uh, we know it really, like I can tell people what to do if they're here in Tower Hamlets. But if you come from Essex, I might not know what the services are, but there's a few go-to. Nowadays, we have the internet. It's also a very good place to seek. So it depends on the, the knowledge of the staff member. It depends on uh, the knowledge of the local area. Yeah. But there's no overarching guidance or pointers. So No. Okay. So, Kate, Katie, you've heard kind of um, what Gareth and what Reggae were talking about here. You've just undertaken a, a large piece of work at Money and Mental Health on suicide prevention, which covers many of the areas we're discussing today. Can you tell us a bit more about that and about the relationship between financial difficulty and suicide? We can, absolutely. So, exactly as Reggie was already saying, really, financial difficulty is just one of many factors that will, will usually play in a case where someone is having suicidal thoughts or feelings. But it is, what our research finds, is one of those kind of proximate factors. And it's particularly the kind of the communication, things that are involved in being in problem debt, having letters coming through your door, often people in multiple debts, multiple letters every day, those calls, so your phone just keeps keeps ringing. Of course, every individual um, bank or creditor will have probably a cap on the number of calls they'll make to a, a client who's in debt every day, but they might not be thinking quite about how that stacks up across the number of problem debts that a person might have. And then potentially someone's getting visits from, from bailiffs and that you know that knock on the door that threat of an intrusion into your home your safe space and then often we hear from people just making really difficult decisions because they're in financial difficulty so you know going without either the absolute essentials of life so being cold being hungry feeling that they are letting their children down um, or going without the things that help them stay well is actually really important too so you know if the thing that you cancel when you're in debt is your gym membership or you can no longer afford that Friday night cinema trip that was the thing that you looked forward to. Uh, that leaves people feeling that uh, you know, life might not be um, worth living, that it's hopeless, that you're trapped with these people chasing you and you can't get out. Now often that financial difficulty, exactly as we said, comes, you know, financial difficulty doesn't happen in a vacuum. People don't usually just wake up one day and decide not to pay their bills. Often it will be that relationship's broken down so half the household income has disappeared. Or someone's had to move suddenly and the rent is now much higher than it was previously. There's been a problem with someone's benefits that means their income has fallen. So this really is a very complicated picture of lots of interrelated things going on. But I think what we can say, and we did some big statistical work um, in partnership with NatSEN, 
using um, a national survey called the Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey for this piece of work. And looking at that big nationally representative data set, what we found actually stunned me in terms of the, the statistical strength of this link. So looking at that data, we find that in about 23% of people who attempt suicide any year in the UK, people are in problem debt. So about a quarter of all people who attempt suicide will always be in problem debt. We find that when we're thinking about the population of people in problem debt, so the people that the collections teams uh, inside banks and other creditors will be dealing with, the people that debt advice services are dealing with, we found that about 13% of those people will be having suicidal thoughts in any given year. And we also find, really sadly, that about 3% of those people, so that's three in every 100 people, um, will attempt suicide in any given year when they're in problem debt. Across the country, that is 420,000 people in problem debt thinking about suicide each year, and 100,000 people in problem debt attempting suicide. And I think for me, why this research is so important, because actually, as Rega was just saying, financial difficulties are one of the things that we can fix. You know, with the right support, it's something that you practically can usually do something about, and there is help out there. So it, it, you know, it's something that together I hope we can make real progress on and save some lives. When, when you say problem debt, what do we mean by that? How, how severe mm. is, is that debt? So the measure that we that is using the statistics is um, people being in two months of arrears or more in the last year or having been disconnected from a utility like energy. Um, that, of course, is only part of the picture. Mm. So probably what we're picking up in this report is people who are in um, the, the most severe kind of problem debt. We know that things get worse as people have more and more debts. Um, but actually, financial difficulty is really subjective. So what I might worry about in terms of my financial stability might not be the same as what someone else finds worrying. Um, and we all have different expectations of what financial stability looks like. So I think it is important to, to meet people where they are. And if someone says that they're worried about money, even if objectively looking at it, you're not sure where the problem is, it's always worth exploring that to work out what the source of their concerns are and what we can do about it to help. So in your report, um, which comes out the same day as this podcast, mm. um, you make a number of recommendations uh, for financial services firms, for debt advice, even for the NHS. It's kind of So what are some of the recommendations that you're laying out in the report? What are you calling for? So it really does go all the way across the piece. Of course, at a local area level, um, responsibility for suicide prevention stays with public health teams. We think there's more that can be done in terms of public health data out there. So as Rick was saying, actually, there's lots of research out there about economic adversity is where we tend to talk about financial factors in suicide prevention. Economic adversity is kind of this big concept that involves things like unemployment and poverty, factors that I think when you're sitting and trying to plan your local service provision are quite hard to get a grip on, right? They're to do with the national economy and you know, big government policies and what can any one person sitting in a public health team do about that stuff? Actually, financial difficulty is a slightly different thing. It's kind of one of the local effects, if you want, the consequences of some of that big government stuff going on up here somewhere. And so for me, bringing that out as a separate issue and really clarifying our understanding is really important in helping us understand the practical tools we can put out there. I think turning to some of your research, Chris, you know, we already know some things about what works well for the people, you know, in Nationwide and other banks, builders, societies and creditors, picking up the phone to someone who's expressing those suicidal thoughts. We can do more to embed best practice there and also in the debt advice sector in regards to the work that we've also recently worked with you on. Um, and then another big thing that we're going to be talking about a lot today, um, so people will probably get sick of us talking about it, is letters. So I've had a bit of a thing about letters since I started this job two years ago. I don't understand why in the year 2018 we still send people letters that are scary. And I've had really interesting conversations about this because I go to lots of creditors in my job and I kind of say, this letter, like, I know you have to send it. I know the regulator says this person is in a race, so you have to send the letter. But it's really scary. You know, you've got this big threat of court action at the top or this big warning that they're going to lose their home. So these are collections and recoveries. Absolutely, yeah. And people are getting them when they're already probably quite scared and stressed. And you're, you know, the creditors will say to me, well, Katie, we're trying to offer help. Look, there's this lovely signposting towards debt advice agencies at the bottom. I'm going, that's great. But when I talk to people, what they tell me is they see this scary bit at the top of the letter and they never get to the bottom of the letter where your lovely offers of help are. 
then the creditor will say, well, I have to put all this information on, it's the regulator that makes me do it. And then, you know, since I've dug into this more, we found some of the problems are actually in quite old legislation. So at the moment, the Consumer Credit Act of 1974 is being reviewed by the FCA, and part of the problem seems to be this act that is now like nearly 50 years old has these provisions about what creditors have to say in these letters that are just outdated and no longer fit for purpose. So we're starting a campaign today to look at the prescribed content inside letters, trying to work out what we really need to tell people so they're aware of the consequences of this situation, but how we can make sure that's done in a way that's not threatening, that doesn't leave people feeling trapped and hopeless, and instead makes it clear that help is out there and gives people a really clear idea of what they need to do to get that support. So, Gareth, you're, you're listening to this. I imagine nationwide and financial services generally uh, issue a lot of letters. Are, 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 they, are they scary? You don't write them to scare people. Uh, you, whether the content is yours to define or whether you're cutting and pasting from the Consumer Credit Act because there's prescribed wording for some of the letters you need to send, you're not intending to scare anybody. You're not intending to frighten them into paying you. You're intending to engage because you want a conversation to understand the circumstances so you can put in place an affordable, sustainable repayment plan or understand that the debt itself is likely to be unrecoverable. That's what you want to do, because creditors are human beings too. But as Katie references, a 45, 50-year-old piece of legislation and um, the consequences of that in terms of the enforceability, which includes the ability to continue to charge interest on the debt, if if a huge swathe of our um, credit products become unenforceable and we are no longer able to charge a customer interest on them because we got the wording in a letter wrong or a letter didn't land on a doormat within a certain time frame, um, that's going to get other parts of a financial services organisation quite agitated and I think quite understandably. And so you've got one on one side you're pulling towards we want to make content more human, we want to demonstrate we're clearly aiming towards engagement but on the other hand you can't not charge any interest on any of the credit products you put out because otherwise your savers will be annoyed that you've got no money to give them in savings and then your relationships with the advice sector and consumer groups um, some of which would call for plain English letters and others of which are actively campaigning for more detailed prescribed wording for more consumer protection you think well clearly there's the same pressures in consumer group land as there are in financial services land to say yeah we want more human content and then you're like yeah, but we also want more prescribed wording in the legislation to make sure that this obscure point of law can't ever be um, exploited by an un uh, a poor creditor. Mm. And, and you sit there and you think, now we're arguing about the words on letters. At some point, the poor client whose life we're trying to save, whose debts we're trying to sort out, he got up and left the room a long time ago, a bit like I left my counselling appointment. We started this argument trying to help somebody and we're still having the argument and we've lost sight of the fact that they've had the house repossessed by the time we finished this argument and they've, mm. they've taken their life by the time we finished having this argument. At some point we've got to focus it back on a human being rather than the enforceability of a contract or the prevention of a loophole in a particular poor piece of legislation. Making it more human, I'll come back to, has to be mm. the point of it all, I think. So it's about horizon, so that's a longer term kind of campaign aim for money and mental health. Yeah. I noticed um, that one of the, the calls in the, in the report was for uh, proactive identification using kind of transaction data, which is something money and mental health and a lot of people have been talking about for a long time. Tell us a bit more about that call. Yeah, absolutely. So problem debt is a really interesting type of a potential trigger for, for suicidality because with other factors going on in a person's life, usually someone else will know. So if your relationship's ended, at least your previous partner will know. Usually other family members and friends will be aware as well. If you, uh, you know, something's gone wrong with your housing, you're having housing problems, they might be very visible, it might be mould in your flat or, or a leak or whatever else, you might have had to move, but people will probably know about that. When it comes to problem debt, we're stuck in this double stigma. You know, we have stigma talking openly and honestly about our feelings. And we have really strong stigma about problem debt. I think in the UK, you know, we still have this kind of cultural perception that being in debt means you've done something wrong and it means you've had this personal failing where you'd agreed to pay something and you've not paid it and that's your fault. And it, we just know it's not true. People get into debt because life happens and things go wrong. And so what we're saying here is that there is always someone who knows when a person's in problem debt. It's their creditor. 
So the creditor is potentially the only other organisation, any people who understand the situation as a person in with regards to their financial difficulty. And to me, you know, that then raises a question about what more could you do if you're potentially the only people that know? And particularly when we know that financial services are sitting on mounds of data about people's circumstances. Um, lots more than they've had before as we all use our contactless cards to tap for everything. So how can we use that to, to get help to people who might not know how to ask and to make sure that that's as timely as it possibly can be? Because ideally you don't want to be intervening right when someone is already in arrears on five different bills. You want to be offering help much further upstream so we can get there before people are, are really desperate. So, so Gareth, kind of let, let's take this a, a, a couple of steps on. So let, let's presume at some point it will be possible to look at the trends and action data. Number one, what sort of conversations uh, can we start with customers from a blank sheet? And number two, and I'm looking to kind of reggae here as well, is if we do then have a fear about someone being in a very difficult circumstance, maybe you've started that conversation and you have an in, in inclination or an indication that they're thinking of suicide, they might not have said it directly. How do we begin those types of conversations? So Gareth, we'll start with the first type. So I think a couple of things here. Um, one is, in terms of the data, we've got to be really careful we don't keep the conversation only about data. Because um, banks and others have been trying to do this pre-delinquency, this proactive pre arrears work for some years now since debt advice charities and regulators thought it was a good idea. And while you've got data geeks trying to crack that nut, looking at data points like credit reference agencies and over-indebtedness indexes and other indices and, and other data points, what they craft is a scoring, a no curve, and, a, a, and you build a strategy for this letter goes at this point and this call goes at this point. And my whole argument is these are human beings. And the conversation you have driven by data is very difficult. Mr Fitch, it appears you may be coming into some financial difficulty. No, I'm not, Gareth. Yes, you are. <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, your credit file says you are. What are you doing checking my credit file? Well, your terms and conditions allow us to. Terms and conditions is the weakest defence any organisation can give about any of their practice or their policy, isn't it? The minute you get there, you've run out of arguments, and it's the first one we can make at the moment on a data-driven, proactive contact strategy. You also get the data guys suggesting some really clever data points, um, and, and there may be some very clever data points that Katie would suggest, but in terms of framing the conversation around something that the customer knows has happened to them, or something that's reasonable for their, the organisation that's trying to have a conversation with them about debt or suicide or anything else, um, that gets an awful lot trickier. Where I want to get to is where those proactive contacts um, take into account some of the human and behavioural stuff we know like, um, individuals in rented housing tenure are more likely to be in financial difficulty than private owned or social rented. How can I get an idea as to what your housing tenure is? Um, individuals with three or more children are more likely to be in problem debt than people without children or with fewer than three children. How can I tell who you are? And how can I begin to use some of that your circumstantial stuff overlaid on the data to be, have a reason to call you. So if I know you've changed address three times in the last 18 months, you're probably in private rented tenure. Well, perhaps if we get to a place where the third time you change address, rather than making that as lean as possible, as slick as possible, strip the cost and complexity out, but monitor for fraud, what if we make the third one a little bit bumpier, a little bit of friction, a little bit of whether it's a, you need to talk to me to change your address, or my letter to you confirming your change of address, now has slightly different language around it to say, we know moving house can be quite an expensive time and if you ever need to talk, we're here and so are this debt advice organisation. Trying to have that human overlay on the data is really, really mm. important and thinking about exactly the question you've asked me, Gareth, what kind of conversation you're going to have with these people is really critical to this because otherwise it's a good idea that the data guys back in regulators and banks and building societies will get excited about and the poor collector, customer service advisor on the phone is given a process that is really hard to follow because they're a human being and the customer they're trying to talk to is a human being. Katie, I'll let you come back briefly to Gareth on that. Oh, I think Gareth has made exactly the right argument, which is, you know, this is, is something that will be really cool if we can get it right. And, and I can't think of anything worse than sending someone a text message that says, you know, it looks like you're broke 
or worse, and we know this might happen, uh, it looks like you've got a mental health problem. I mean, that would, you can just imagine the consequences, can't you? If someone was receiving those messages when they weren't expecting it from an organisation that, as far as they're concerned, is, you know, just a place where they keep their money and that gives them a debit card they spend stuff on. So we have to think really carefully about these conversations and we have to put people back into the conversations in terms of what sort of support would you want your bank to offer? I mean, to co-design, you know, what, what would this look like? What, how would you want this conversation to start? How should we talk to you before we do this stuff about the kind of data analysis we might do with your transactions and when we might contact you and how would you want us to contact you? Um, I think we're in an exciting space because, you know, we're at the start of being able to do this sort of analysis and we have the ability to build this system from the ground up in a way that really works for people. I'm hoping we'll be able to get money in the mental health fantastic research community, which is a group of 5,000 people with lived experience of mental health problems, into this conversation and really use that to get things moving about how we do this really well. Okay, so it's about building bridges. So let, let's let's take a couple of steps on, on to reggae. So we're in a situation where um, yeah, a bank is talking to a customer or maybe you're talking to someone you've seen who's come in. Uh, there's some concerns about that person's uh, thinking around hurting themselves or maybe taking on. How does anyone start a conversation about this? I mean, how dad do you approach well, it? Before we start on how to approach the conversation, I think what's really important um, to think about or to talk about is people are often very fearful that if I ask a question, I might make them suicidal. And I hear this time and time again when I teach uh, non-mental health staff and even mental health staff in how to talk about suicide and suicidality. Like people often think, if I start asking questions, I might be the one who tips the person over to do something. So first of all, this research has been um, published in the last year that's very clear that by talking about suicide, you do not make people suicidal. If anything, actually having a conversation and you talk about the stigma and the sort of like embarrassment that might be around death, feeling suicidal has the exact same thing. And you might be the one person who actually can have a frank conversation about this. So we try and encourage people to say is or to do is by talking uh, and language is really important around this, but to talk to the person about how they might be feeling, you might be the one person that they can open up to. And once you start opening up to it, there's some safety, safety mechanisms. It's when people don't talk about it, it's really unsafe. Is that okay? Yeah. So then the next step is, so then how do you then talk about suicide? Um, or the feelings around it? So, um, I, well, the way we do it is, is generally start quite open. So um, first of all, the language has to be clear. Uh, the, the, and then the second second all is like you might want to start like a slightly soft if that makes sense. So rather, so we, I would advise people to so uh, when I do the teaching, I say to to people, start with something like, all the things you're describing to me sounds very stressful, and that's a good like stress is something is part of a human condition and we can all relate to. You're not uh, saying that someone has a mental illness or not. Stress is is part of life. Um, so we we'll say, this sounds very stressful. Have you ever had thoughts? that life is not worth living. It's nice and open. We talk about suicidality and thoughts of dying is part of the human condition. It doesn't mean that you're mentally ill. And also, um, at different times, time point in our life, you might have thoughts about what is life all about. So again, it's quite open and it doesn't have the stigma associated with it. If the person then says, yes, actually, I do feel like that, um, then you can start saying, so what does that mean? Have you had thoughts of dying? Which is the next step. And then once the person starts talking about that, you can say, well, have you had any plans of dying? Because that's the other thing. Just because people have thoughts of dying doesn't mean that they actually want to die. And then the next step, once you start talking about the planning, if the person starts having plans, that's when you definitely need to sort of be more aware. And then that's why you might have to take actions of making sure the person gets support. And obviously, if the person is having plans of dying, the next question we advise people to talk about is, um, so far, what has stopped you? because there might be some quite clear things that the person is doing, and the next bit is like, we want to help you. Can we have a think about what might help you? So this yeah. is really interesting, because the people you'll be seeing here in A&E or in kind of a health setting yeah. um, will be presenting with some form of distress, and I'm wondering whether this needs to be translated to a creditor or financial services sector, so go through a series of filters, because yeah. I imagine some staff will hope that maybe they can hint at this and people will then disclose as opposed to asking outright, are you thinking of taking your own life? Yeah. Or whether actually taking that bold step, such as like the storm training or the assist training around suicide yeah. prevention is all about asking directly. I mean, are financial services, are they ready 
to kind of be asking these questions to customers. Well, I remember getting really nervous while you were gearing up to publish your 21 Steps research and working with you around Blake protocol and thinking, oh goodness, doesn't talking to people about suicide make them more likely? How on earth do I persuade frontline advisors and collectors and policy guys back at Nationwide to, that this protocol is one that's going to be worth exploring? Um, but after a couple of weeks of being in that work frame of mind, I remembered that when a family member was walking through their intentions um, and, and plans and quite detailed uh, date and place and time plans for taking their life, um, I realised I had a choice. I can either be, I can either try and protect our family relationship and say I don't want to talk about this stuff, um, or as long as you're talking about it, and the longer we talk together about it, I think. I can be more confident about your overall health and if the worst does happen from my point of view I know I will have done all I can but shutting you off right now might mean that I'm the I was the only person you were disclosing to and might make you feel more alone and that helped me get in the frame of mind that Blake might work Um, and having uh, rolled out the training within uh, nationwide into specialist teams um, Blake does work the longer you have people talking and the calmer you can make that environment around it. The more you destigmatize mental health, asking for help, problems with money, and you destigmatize it among the staff who need to support the individual going through the difficulty too. And so while hearing uh, Reggae's suggestion there incites in me the same kind of, oh my goodness, would this work? It worked with Blake. I'd be open to exploring it uh, further in certain teams in Nationwide, uh, and I'd hope that colleagues in other bits of financial services were too. I'm very confident about the requirement to build an environment in which it is safe to disclose. How far financial service can can go looking for a disclosure, I don't know. Mm. How far do we get to the point where the nation's flaky trust of the financial services sector um, isn't quite there enough that in seeking the disclosure, it just isn't forthcoming because our sector isn't one that's trusted as well as the health uh, sector Mm. or others. So open to exploring but I think there are some systemic factors that might limit how far financial services can go. That's interesting. So for, for listeners who don't know, 21 Steps is a guide that came out last year um, from uh, Personal Finance Research Centre, where, where I, I work with colleagues Jamie Evans and Colin Trent and Sharon Collard, and Blake is a tool about handling suicide disclosures. It's kind of, um, can I just push you a little bit more on that? Do you think, and bring others in as well, do you think that's a role for specialist staff, or do you think that's a role for all staff in a collection setting or in a branch setting, should all staff have suicide prevention training, be able to ask these questions, or is this actually for where things are elevated within the organisation? There's a danger if you keep it only into specialist teams, that the systems you've built about who gets referred to those specialist teams prevent prevent people who need access to people with those skills and experience in having those conversations, the conversation just doesn't happen. I think there's a world where the training goes into specialist teams and the means of referral into those specialist teams is wide, wide open. When you limit that, constrain it to, uh, is your customer in mental health crisis, is your customer um, indicating some very severe, If the more you control the referral criteria into those specialist teams, the fewer of these conversations you'd have and therefore the requirement to roll this training out across all front line. I think whether there's two ways to do it. You roll the training out to as many of the front line as is relevant. If you're in a role, customer-facing role where it's likely you may have a conversation with somebody in some form of crisis, whether that be a mental health or a financial health crisis, you should have access to these tools or you should have very ready access to colleagues who have access to these tools. So it's either frontline training or it's low-level referral criteria. When you're speaking to someone who's um, having suicidal thoughts, um, what, what should you do? You've talked about some of the questions you might ask, but I wonder about... Well, a lot of it is really about the attitude you, you bring with it. And what I try and, and when I do train people how to talk about this stuff, it's to try and bring the human element in. And you talked about that. So it might be that in a work setting you might use it, but actually we all come across people who might be feeling suicidal at one point or another. And I think sometimes it feels like it's something so specialist and complicated, and there's an element of that. Like once the person is disclosing suicidal thoughts, they might have to go into professionals. But there's something about being a human being and actually being able to ask questions, being curious. 
But more important is when the person is feeling like that, it often feels like it's such a terrible thing that I should not talk about. And someone saying, hey, what's going on? That human connection can actually go a long way to give the person a sense of hope that it's not all lost and I'm not all alone. So we know the, the, the biggest of the biggest indicator of, of sort of protective factors of what can perhaps safeguard against suicidality is a sense of hope, but it's also about relationship. So it, often when people feel like that, relationships are breaking down, not necessarily from a fault of their own or from people around them, but there's so much stuff going on. So when they can start rebuilding relationships in a broader sense, it's actually when things can get safer. Um, so there's something about being able to tolerate the anxiety, because I think that's a bit we're not talking about as openly, actually, when some, someone is suspect that, that the person on the other end of the line is feeling suicidal, it makes the person take, taking the call feel very anxious. I need to do something. I should be doing something. And that's where you need the support mm. uh, for staff. So actually when this comes up, uh, and there has been some incidents, like what training does the, the senior staff on duty in the call handling centre have? What do they do? How do you, how do you hold the anxiety that it makes you feel that someone might be feeling suicidal? Because actually... Are you more likely to ask questions if you don't get the support in the future? Mm. And what is the support and how do we deal with this? So it's not just about the person on the front line, it's actually about the seniors, the supervisors need to be skilled in actually helping their staff taking the phone calls. Mm. I wrote this suicide referral policy for a financial services organisation, not the one I work for today, and the most articulate I could get it was escalator manager. I was the manager Uh, and, (laughs) and it worked for that time in that place because I was me mm. it, but there was no training in place for the, the supervisor and so on so it's a good point you make Reggae. And is it also about download so after the call you know taking some time out yeah. I mean what, what happens in the NHS if someone's had a particularly difficult um, encounter? So we talk about debriefing and hubbles which is kind of word for you just chat to someone about what's going on if, if we had some very difficult um, cases uh, that might have impacted staff a lot. We might have a debrief with the whole team sitting down together. But as a baseline, as a bit of sort of foundation for support, we have uh, monthly supervisions. Uh, we have access to so in our team we have a on-call system. So you have escalation in seniority, so you can always um, call and speak to someone if you have concerns. Um, most health services ac- access to. Um, uh, staff counselling that you don't have to tell you, your your manager about, so you can access yourself if you feel you need that. But I think um, the thing that actually is the biggest safeguard in any team is having uh, colleagues that you feel you can rely on, and you can perhaps uh, have a bit of a downtime. So if you finish the call, being able to say, Do you know, I just need five minutes, I need to just get some fresh air and a cup of tea. You don't have to say why, and no one gives you a hard time for it because actually sometimes you just need your mind to just settle down again. Mm-hmm. Because when we take these phone calls, when we hear these stories, it affects us. And there's research coming up now from Manchester where they talk about actually the impact of dealing with someone who's, who's died or someone whose suicide has an impact. It, c- it can create trauma in the staff themselves. So there's a big shift in trying to think about this differently. Mm. And we're not just talking about health staff, bank staff, police, ambulance, the whole, like everyone who deals with people might be feeling suicidal. It affects us. It's about acknowledging that. One of the, um, the steps in the Blake tool, and there are many different ways to kind of handle disclosures, kind of suicide and Blake is just one of them, um, is about um, keeping people safe, is, is the key. Yeah. Uh, keep them safe, and part of that can often be um, bringing in the emergency services. Now for frontline staff in financial services and debt advice, sometimes that's a bit of a, a black hole. You keep the person talking, you kind of arrange um, a visit from the emergency services, then they don't know what happens. Yeah. Could you give us some insight on what happens? So again, um, it, it very much depends on the area where you live and the situation. So it depends on, so, so my understanding, so I don't work in the call centres for the emergency services, but my understanding is they have like a, almost like a triage process where they prioritise the extent, they get the information and decide on how to respond to it. But the responses varies from police going to knock on the door and having a, a chat with a the person. They have some training. They have definitely experience in dealing with this, uh, where they would talk to the person. And if they're concerned, they might want to bring them into A&E uh, to be seen. But we also have had situations where the concerns have been very acute, where actually the person is very much at risk now. And uh, the police would then go through that route of dealing with this. Um, I've had patients where the police had to break into the flats to make sure the person was safe. Um, ambulance crews might go along. 
uh, and there was like they might look through the window and going that's enough concern that makes us want to get the police to help us so it's varying responses mm. there isn't just one response uh, that happens to this so it depends on what the urgency and the concern is and this is why when someone takes a call and they feel like they have to do the K in the, in the Blake mm -hmm. framework um, it's about getting perhaps as much information as they can because it helps people on the other end to decide on the response so that handover to the emergency services to provide some of that information yeah. to sense it yeah. and they, they, they will break in as well well uh, again like I, I don't quote me on this one <laughs> yeah. in the sense that I, I'm not a police officer I have come across where this has happened but it had, had has only been on when the police have had enough information and grounds to say actually someone's at risk in the property it's not something they do all the time yeah. but actually that has been when there's very very clear information that goes actually someone might have taken an overdose or someone might be actually at the moment harming themselves but they would do everything else beforehand it's not something and then obviously the police will be able to cl clarify this but they will have their policies and processes for how yeah, to do this Katie, part of the um, money and mental health report uh, that comes out today um, touches on the NHS as well and it's always hand in hand lots of the what you've done in the past is about helping NHS staff, social care staff. Can you tell us about some of the recommendations in relation to the NHS? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, we, we try to get out as much as we can to talk to, to brilliant people working in the NHS and we know that so for most of us, even like with our consumer hats on, so managing our own households, money's complicated, uh, it's quite often boring, it's difficult. And you then put that into mental health context when people doing jobs like yours where I go, are trying to juggle so many factors. And this is one that you know comes up, it's one you know is fixable, but quite often the right kind of help isn't available and you don't know where to point people to. Or when you do know when to point people to, you know, say you know there's a local advice service. Actually, what we hear quite often from mental health professionals is those services aren't accessible. So, you know, you're sending someone to the local citizen's advice or another local advice agency and the queue is like three hours long just to get an assessment appointment. Um, that assessment appointment, you know, might not be particularly satisfying for the, for the person there. They might feel that they, they haven't had enough time with the advisor to talk through all the issues they're facing or they're having to talk to several different people because one person does benefits and they've got a benefits issue another person does housing and another person does debt and, and so you're being dragged all over the place. And... We think there's more that can be done to, well, firstly, make sure that specialist services are available in mental health settings. Um, we did some research a little while ago looking at what the benefits might be of putting particularly specialist um, money advice into IAPT settings. So IAPT, um, for financial services listening, uh, you, people listening, is the uh, Improving Access to Psychological Therapies programme. It's the largest um, programme of particularly cognitive behavioural therapy um, in England. It's where most people who turn up at their GP with symptoms of something like anxiety or depression will end up being sent in the first instance. Um, and having specialist money advice in that sort of setting would make that referral process so much easier for staff and would mean that we don't have to see what we're sometimes hearing from particularly clinical staff, which is that people are spending lots and lots of time trying to sort practical problems themselves. We did some work last year talking to, to clinicians and actually heard things like psychiatrists spending time filling out benefits forms. Um, quite often they don't do a very good job because these forms are really complicated and that again can leave the person feeling more hopeless because look at this really clever doctor who helps me with everything else can't do this form, there is no hope for anyone else to do it. So really thinking about who the appropriate people to be giving that advice are, where those people sit and how we get, we sort of join the dots for people to get them into the appropriate service as easily as we possibly can. Okay going to close now um, for two reasons. One, to prove that we have listeners. I've got some listener questions. Uh, <laughs> who are they? <laughs> yes, it's kind of a, but, um, I'm gonna, there's two listener questions. One's from um, Dan Holloway, who'll be familiar to some of us in the room, who's a, a mental health campaigner. And Dan is talking about the issue of horizons and suicidality. Um, you were talking about it regularly in terms of hope. And Dan's saying that Timelines involved in repairing a, a shattered credit record extend beyond any horizon imaginable sometimes when you're feeling suicidal. So kind of what kind of a reassurance or hope or even kind of practical solution can financial services provide in those, in those settings? Gareth, do you, do you have a view on this? So the credit reference impact of missed payments uh, caused by any reason um, is raised in all kinds of different research and, and policy suggestions 
and, and in this country, our credit files really, really important to us. Our access to credit is something that causes us, gives us great confidence and hope or causes us great anxiety, whether or not we ever would draw down on that credit. We, we, we promote this keep a clean credit file, get the best credit score you can um, as, a, as a financial capability thing. And yet, um, and I, I wonder whether the focus we have societally on this adds to the load on people that when they do miss a couple of payments and their credit file moves correspondingly because it's all just factual information um, I wonder whether that potentially causes some of the anxiety that a low credit score seems to cause people currently uh, with the model in this country where credit files and credit references are calculated by multiple companies the financial services organisations and other people who contribute data to it only contribute factual missed payment X paid Y amount on Z date um, and the scoring criteria around it is is owned by each individual lender. Um, currently, uh, individuals whose credit file has been impacted by a period of mental health crisis or some other trigger can register a notice of correction, uh, which is like a, an entry they make themselves to the credit file that they can request that creditors uh, or people they want to borrow money from can consider when um, considering their application for credit. There's no requirement on the creditor to, to say, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Fitch, your poor credit score is because of a mental health crisis, we'll lend you the money. Um, it's down to each individual lender. I don't know what more we can do around re repair of credit files in the current model. However, there are a number of challenger credit reference organisations who are looking at other ways of um, proving somebody's credit worthiness and affordability, which is really important. Um, and it might be that over the coming year or two, we're less and less reliant on a score from a website and a little bit more reliant on some more live behavioural information about an individual today. Okay, we've got a question from Asim Ilyas, uh, which is about the affordability aspect right at the start. And um, to paraphrase Asim's question, it was around, would uh, not more comprehensive affordability checks actually prevent people becoming suicidal in the first place? We currently, we, uh, creditors would and money lenders would balance affordability and creditworthiness next to each other. Um, if you, it, th I think that's right. Uh, I think your past payment record is important. Um, there'll be a sector of um, people who are applying for credit who, on strict affordability rules, can't afford to repay the principal, yet alone the interest. Mm. I suppose stricter affordability checks to the point of stress testing outgoings to make sure all future affordability is guaranteed, nailed on, never ever going to miss a payment, would constrict the supply of credit to a bunch of people who, for whom that either would be a helpful nudge into getting help, but might also cause a crisis. I see where he's coming from, um, and, and more consistent affordability checks across the whole credit sector will be welcomed by the mainstream banks who've been doing this pretty well for quite a while. Lovely. So um, a closing question, we'll start with our reggae and work our way around. So if there was one change or one lesson that financial services uh, could take on in relation to suicide prevention, what, what would it be? Well, probably trying to keep things as personalised, exactly what Gareth is talking about. When, when we do um, suicide uh, work, which actually sounds quite negative, when we support a person who, who might be feeling suicide, we try and personalise the response to them. And actually that is difficult, but it's doable. And it's about making sure that the person is fit for purpose, not just a, a process. And we try and stay away from process as much as possible and definite tick lists and a no-no. It's a, not a safe way to manage um, suicidality, but it becomes messy then and it takes training. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, for me, I'd look at um, the Institute's research and think the most meaningful thing that financial services can do to prevent uh, suicidality would be to double up efforts to reduce problem debt. But, um, whether the focus on um, identifying suicidality and how you coach the conversation, if that feels a little out of your league, then double up your efforts to identify people who are in problem debt, the support you put in place, your signposting and referral processes, because if we can reduce the number of people in problem debt and inc decrease the time it takes for them to notice they're in difficulty and seek help, um, that in itself, if the stats work the other way around, would reduce suicidality in the long run. And so I, I think that's my takeaway and what I would be saying to any financial services firm. Katie? I, I think I'd echo everything both Gareth and, and Rega had said. They've still the two best answers. It's not fair going on this, Chris. Um, so I think know that this is a big problem. I think that's the first thing I'd say is, you know, 
We've put some big stats out in front of you today. They are terrifying. My heart breaks a little bit every time I think about those numbers. But also know that this is something we can help with. Um, let's take that message of hope forward. Let's think really practically about this because exactly throughout this conversation, this is all about real people. Let's look at our collections processes. Let's work out how we can make it as easy as we possibly can for people to get help as early as possible when they are in arrears or problem debt and, and just build a supportive environment as we can to, to make sure people get the support that they need and we don't have to have as many conversations about suicide. And where can people get hold of the report or support the campaign? So all the details will be on moneyandmentalhealth.org um, and hopefully we'll also be all over the media today talking about things. It's, uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> it's kind of a, so I'd like to thank um, Reggae, thank you, Gareth and Katie for your time today. Um, if you've been affected by any of the issues in this uh, discussion, please do uh, look at our website, uh, moneyvicetrust.org slash podcasts, where you find um, details of supporting organisations. In the next podcast, uh, we'll be looking at the issue of um, uh, financial difficulty and mental health. But until then, thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.